0: Thanks for tuning in. One of the things that makes a show like Outcasting possible is financial support from listeners like you. Please visit us at mfpg.org and click on support to make your tax-deductible contribution. And connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, and YouTube at Outcasting Media.
1: I was diagnosed with intersex when I was about 13 years old. I was having abdominal pain. They... Um, did all sorts of tests on me to figure out if maybe there was something like an ovary was rupturing. They discovered nothing was wrong with me, but in the process of discovering that, they discovered that I had testes internally and um, I did not have a uterus, I did not have ovaries, and they also discovered that I had XY chromosomes.
2: This is Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program, where you don't have to be queer to be here. Outcasting is a production of Media for the Public Good, a listener-supported independent producer based in New York, online at outcastingmedia.org. Hi, I'm Lucas, a youth participant in Outcasting's main studio in Westchester County, New York. On this edition of Outcasting, Outcaster Andrea talks with Carrie Gabrielle Costello and Georgian Davis about their experiences being intersex, which means they were born with physical characteristics that don't fit into binary sex categories. Carrie is an associate professor of sociology at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee and the director of the LGBT Studies program there. Georgian is an associate professor of sociology at the University of Nevada at Las Vegas and board president of Interact, a nonprofit that advocates for intersex youth. In this conversation, Carrie and Georgian talk about what it means to be intersex and the difficulties that they and other intersex individuals face. This is part one of a series.
3: Georgene Davis and Carrie Gabriel-Costello, thanks so much for joining us. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. What terminology do we use to describe intersex people? And is there a word for people who aren't intersex, similar to cisgender for non-transgender people? Carrie.
0: The correct term to use would be intersex. And a person who is not intersex, I would refer to as endosex, E-N-D-O-S-E-X.
3: So, Georgian, how would you define the term intersex?
1: I would define intersex um, as an individual having a combination of what are considered stereotypically male and female sex uh, characteristics that deviate from what we would normally expect. For example, I was born... um, with an intersex trait, uh, referred to as complete androgen insensitivity syndrome. And that means that I was born with an outward female appearance, but inside, instead of having ovaries, a uterus, and fallopian tubes, I was born with testes and XY chromosomes, and I didn't have a uterus. I didn't have ovaries or fallopian tubes.
0: Terry? I would add one thing, yes. And that is that there are an array of different traits. And our sex characteristics include chromosomes, they include external genitalia, they include internal reproductive organs, they include gonads, and each one of those can vary independently. So there's not just one type of way that people can be intersex, there's many different ways that people are intersex, and it's good to be aware going into things that we come in a really wide spectrum of bodies.
3: Carrie, would you say that? What qualifies being intersex is universally agreed on, or are there differing definitions?
0: Yes, there are definitely differing definitions, but the main distinction is between what intersex advocates uh, would use, and then people in the medical profession who would give us a wide variety of diagnoses and would classify them differently. So a person who has, say, an atypical level of sex hormones might be classified sometimes by doctors as intersex and sometimes as a man or woman with hypo or hyper gonadism. From an intersex advocacy perspective, all of us with intermediate sex traits are all equally intersex.
1: There's so many different intersex traits that exist and there's a lot of disagreement especially across uh, different stakeholders, whether it's uh, medical providers or intersex activists or advocates about if a particular characteristic or trait does count as intersex. And I think just even the fact that we're debating that is really kind of scary, at least to me. I think that I'm, for one, am not one to want to sort of determine one's intersex uh, status, but let an individual themselves determine their own status based on their own markers
3: how common is being intersex?
1: I think we have estimates that range anywhere from 1 in 150 um, people, live births, to 1 in 2000. It really just depends uh, on how and what one is classifying as intersex. And some of the same people offer these drastically different estimates of intersex in the population. So what I always say is that intersex is common enough that I'm confident that every single person on this planet has met someone who is intersex. Now, whether or not that person themselves know they were intersex because of the lies and the secrecy and shame is another issue. Or if that person feels comfortable identifying themselves as intersex. That, those are other stories. But I do know everyone on this planet has met someone who's who's intersex. Carrie?
0: The decisions about excluding whole sectors of people with intermediate sex traits from the official medical definition of intersexuality has nothing to do with the logic of bodies and everything to do with fear and an attempt to erase intersexuality. If we were living in a world in which no one was ashamed to either be themselves intersex or to acknowledge that their child is born intersex, that we would see a much larger number of people being classified by doctors and other professionals as intersex. Um, But the intent has been to try and minimize that number and to erase us, and that's seen as an appropriate and good thing for our own protection, that we should not be classified as intersex if at all possible.
3: So Carrie, since you're both intersex and transgender, how do those two identities relate? The
0: first thing I would say is that intersex is not an identity. Intersex is a description of the body. So let's say you have a person who is born with external genitalia that we usually consider male, and inside they have a uterus and ovaries. That person would be intersex no matter how they identify. Their gender identity, though, Well, nobody would know what that is unless you ask them. Maybe they would identify as a man or a woman or as a non-binary person. The main thing that we have in common as intersex and trans people is that we agree that genitals don't determine gender. So our bodies don't determine how we identify. And um, an intersex person could have any gender identity, but being intersex itself is not a matter of identity, it's a matter of how our bodies are constituted.
3: Can you tell us about the term ipso-gender that you suggested and why it's necessary?
0: The reason that I use the term ipso-gender myself when I am talking about people is that all of us who are born intersex are born neither male nor female. But that is not an option on birth certificates in the U.S. as of yet. And so children are classified and put into a binary sex. That means none of us are given a sex marker that matches our bodies at birth. So calling somebody cisgender when the marker on their ID does not match the sex status of their body at birth is strange. On the other hand, it's also very strange to call somebody transgender if, say, they're assigned female at birth, and they grow up and identify as a woman, calling them transgender would not describe their experience either. So the term "ipsogender" is a term we use just when we're talking about intersex people. Today, it would seem that a majority of people living today in the US who are intersex are willing to live in the sex they were assigned at birth. So there are probably substantially more trans people among intersex folks than there are among endosex folks, but your average person who is intersex is going to be living in the sex they were assigned at birth and we want a term for that that is not cisgender or transgender because it's neither of those experiences so that's why we use the term ipso gender when I'm talking about intersex folks who identify with the binary sex they were put into at birth
3: so georgian when did you find out that you were intersex and how i was
1: diagnosed with intersex or that I was intersex when I was about 13 years old and that happened because I was running around outside with my brother and uh, our friends and I was having abdominal pain and my mother initially was thinking that I was getting my period and she needed to have that talk with me so she brought me inside and when she started talking to me and I explained to her that wasn't what was happening I wasn't getting my period that's when she got scared and she let me go back outside and I continue to play with my friends and my brother. And then when the pain didn't go away, she got increasingly alarmed. So she took me to an urgent care center and they um, did all sorts of tests on me to figure out if maybe there was something wrong with something like an ovary was rupturing. They didn't know they were doing all these tests. And In the process of doing all these tests, they discovered that nothing was wrong with me. That pain that I had was just, you know, cramping from muscle pain or what have you. It wasn't at all related. So they discovered nothing was wrong with me. But in the process of discovering that, they discovered that I had testes internally. And um, I did not have a uterus. I did not have ovaries. And they also discovered that I had X Y. Chromosomes later than uh, a little later. I wasn't told the truth about my diagnosis when I was um, at that urgent care center. I was told that I wouldn't be able to have biological children. And I, I recall not being very upset about that because, you know, I was 13 or something. I wanted a dog. I didn't want kids. But I later, you know, had surgery to remove those testes. I thought they were removing cancerous ovaries. That's what I was told. Um, and then when I was about 19 or so, I obtained my medical records and uh, I read through it and there's a, everything, a lot of it was redacted and, but you know, I was able to read through the black Sharpie and I, I could see things that XY chromosomes, I could read things about being lied to and, and, and they knew that. And I read things about t- uh, testes being removed from my body and, and I really got freaked out and freaked out not so much about what I was reading per se but about the fact that people lie to me my my family right my doctors my doctors I actually looked up to and and my family I, I love and of course you know still do but I just didn't understand why people would lie to me and I, and I it was just this unfamiliar sort of experience and I threw out my medical records never wanting to talk about it again and then eventually as I moved forward with my education in sociology and started reading a little bit more about gender and about bodies and everything else, I became more comfortable with it and revisited the experience. And since then, I sort of bridged my personal experience with uh, intersex and my professional desires to sort of understand inequalities in society.
3: How did finding out that you were intersex change your understanding of sex or gender? learning about
1: my own experience with intersex opened my eyes to seeing that what I believed was a simple phenomenon that people are either male or female is way more complicated than that and how those gendered expectations are imposed on us. So learning that I was intersex really opened my eyes to understanding and appreciating the natural variation that's found across so many species, especially, um, you know, humans.
3: On the topic of that, Ipsogender would essentially be you, Georgian. So do you consider yourself cisgender? And do you think that Ipsogender would be sort of a better alternative?
1: Well, that's a great question. I identify as ipso-gender more than identifying as cisgender. That probably wasn't the case my entire life. For one, the term ipso-gender didn't exist. But also, I think I just wasn't really comfortable with thinking about myself being outside of a binary box that we all are forced into. For me, the issue is maybe less about the gender that we are assigned at birth. I certainly think gender is oppressive in many ways, but I don't think it's the job of intersex people or trans folks, or especially children, right, to sort of fight these sort of, uh, or the oppression that surrounds gender as a larger structural system. I think it's all of our jobs, regardless of our genitalia, to sort of fight that. So for me, the issue is less about the gender that I was assigned at birth and more about the fact that as I aged and the diagnosis was discovered, that my body was surgically modified to fit the gender that was assigned. And I'm not against surgical interventions or anything like that. I'm just myself personally and professionally, I'm just sort of frustrated with the fact that people's bodily autonomy is taken from them during that medicalization process.
0: If I could interject. Yeah, absolutely. The problem... I would say as an intersex and trans person is definitely not that surgeries exist. It's the question of who is given surgeries and the problem for intersex people is having surgeries imposed on us without our ability to consent or to say, no, I don't want that because we're children. Even if we are old enough to say something that surgeries are performed and we are lied to about what's happening to try and conceal that intersex status from us. So as an intersex person, we're concerned about all of the negative effects of a surgery that somebody didn't want being forced on them. Whereas for trans folks, the autonomy issue is in the reverse. It's the issue of people seeking out medical interventions into their body and being denied them. What we have in common is that we all believe that there should be autonomy about the sexed body and that people should be able to decide for themselves, hey, do I want any interventions that would support the way that I identify and how my body functions? And if I don't want them, then nobody should force them on me. If I do want them, I should be able to access them.
1: What I was just going to add is that I think it's really interesting, and, and I've studied this and I've published a paper on this, but that gets at the fundamental question of how is it that intersex people are subjected to interventions that they don't want, why trans folks have difficulty getting interventions they might want? And of course, these aren't mutually exclusive categories, right? As Carrie eloquently described earlier, there are intersex trans folks um, in the world, of course. But I think... Thinking about that distinction and why intersex folks are subjected to interventions and trans folks can't access them without jumping through hoops when those hoops are on fire and then there's glass there and everything else, it makes it so difficult. I think that really speaks to the power of of the medical profession.
3: So, Carrie, would you consider this kind of surgical intervention to be ill-advised?
0: I believe that any surgery into the sex characteristics of a body that they have not been given full informed consent and that they have agreed to without any coercion that's just not an acceptable thing to do to somebody else so an example that i would give is imagine if a, um, a parents had given birth to a child and it had a body that was you know that of an endosex male and they said the, we we wanted a girl and they go to a doctor and they say, hey, we just really wanted a girl. We're not comfortable with the sex traits of our our baby. Please give my baby a sex change. Well, in our society, um, that's not permitted. You can't make that decision for somebody else. And yet when we as intersex people are put in a similar position, we're born with a set of sex traits, (laughs) um, and our doctors and parents say, you know what, we're just gonna change that even though you're just a little child, that's accepted.
2: This is Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program, produced by Media for the Public Good in New York, online at outcastingmedia.org. On this edition, Outcasting youth participant Andrea is talking with professors Carrie Gabriel-Costello and Georgian Davis about what it's like to be intersex and about issues faced by intersex people.
3: So Kerry, what justifications have medical professionals used as reasons to perform these interventions on intersex people?
0: There are, let's say, three things that doctors say. One, they claim there's some sort of medical risk to being intersex. Two, they say that it's a social emergency, and if they don't do surgery, we will commit suicide. (laughs) And three, they describe that they are capacitating us. They're making us capable of having happy relationship lives in the future. Uh, We'll be able to find a partner in the way that they presume somebody wishes to find a partner, and that's a presumption that everybody's going to grow up, identify as a heterosexual person who wishes to have penetrative vaginal sex. Um, and then if you can't do that, then you'll never be able to find a partner. I would say that all three of those are, are false. That doctors' claims that somehow our atypical sex traits, are dangerous, and have to be removed are based on no evidence, really. Limited evidence that in some cases, for things that are not considered problematic if a person's not intersex. For example, there's a claim that if you have an internal testis, that you're at a heightened risk of developing cancer, and that therefore those testes should be removed um, in order to protect the child from dying of cancer someday. The thing is, the amount of elevated risk that is estimated is way less than the um, risk of a person developing breast cancer if they're an endosex woman. By that same logic, we should say, okay, no girl should be allowed to develop breasts because breasts present a risk for breast cancer, and we should remove them all preemptively. We don't do that. We wait for there to actually be a problem to intervene um, because we recognize that breasts are useful to people in many ways. Well, so are having gonads um, useful to people in many ways. Uh, So that supposed line of logic is not one that doctors would ever hold to if the person were not intersex. Similarly, the idea that they have to try to modify our bodies to erase our visible differences, um, the justification for that, that it would be intolerable to live with an intersex body that other people could see that way, that's a social problem. And the correct way that you address social discrimination is through social action. <laughs> you have an anti-discrimination campaign. I mean, by this logic, that we should, we should erase differences and that that is the only way to deal with people being cruel to other people, we should say, give all children who are born with brown skin, not medication so that they would uh, turn white and that that should be considered medically necessary. Um, that is not the way that we approach people acting cruelly or discriminating against folks who are people of color. So that line of logic is not one that doctors would use elsewise. Uh, so no, I th- there are a series of justifications giving, given, but I don't agree with them. And Georgian, I'm sure, has other things to say about that.
2: I
1: would just add that I think doctors sometimes justify their interventions by pointing to parents. And they say that they're just doing what parents ask them to do, and that perhaps parents would have difficulty bonding with their child who has intersex traits. Um, but I kind of stop and can't even continue when I hear that justification because it ignores the fact that doctors often present intersex to the parents of a newly diagnosed intersex child as a medical emergency. And anytime you present something as an emergency, you're establishing the need for an emergency response. And thus, since it's a medical emergency or framed that way, then the only response is to respond medically and to sort of consent to any sort of medical recommendations. So just to put it another way, if you tell the parents that there's a medical problem and a, a really big problem at that, then you're likely to find that parents are going to say, well, what can you do to fix this big medical problem? As opposed to presenting the intersex trait, uh, however it may have surfaced or has, had been discovered as a natural variation, which is what it is, um, then parents uh, would respond differently. And I know there's empirical evidence, actually, to suggest that the way in which the diagnosis is delivered um, shapes how um, parents respond.
3: So, Carrie, what are the chances that the gender chosen in surgery or whatever intervention they take ends up being incorrect in terms of the person's gender identity once that becomes apparent?
0: We have zero idea. And the reason we have zero idea is because there are very few follow-up studies of intersex people that look at a large random sample of us as we develop. And two, because of the intersex folks that I know who have gender transitioned, uh, many of them have done so without any knowledge of the the doctors who had initially given them surgery that was not the surgery that they would have chosen had they been given a choice. So the answer is, we don't know. And nobody in the medical profession is uh trying to follow that up in any major way because uh, I I think they're just afraid what they would find out.
1: (laughs) And Georgian, I would just second what Carrie said. I don't think we have any really um, good evidence of that. I I, I do think that there's no reason to believe that gender dissatisfaction or anything like that if we want to use that kind of weird terminology um, is higher among intersex folks than it is uh, in the general population. I I don't know, but we don't, it would be an empirical question. We don't really have good evidence of that, as Carrie stated.
0: I mean, I I would add to that, that I think we have a little bit of evidence. And I think that the evidence that we do have suggests, but all we have are suggestions, that it's more likely for a person to be dissatisfied in the gender that they were assigned if their external genitalia were visibly intermediate. And that's what was surgically altered. There's a study um, that came out of um, University of Hawaii, I believe it is, and it, it compared some people who have partial androgen insensitivity to people who have complete androgen insensitivity syndrome. And so these are people who are classified as having like kind of the same thing. That's atypical about their bodies, except those who have complete androgen insensitivity syndrome will be born with bodies that appear to be typically female on the outside. And so they're not um, given genital surgery often as compared to people who have partial androgen insensitivity syndrome who are born genitally intermediate to some degree or another and often do have external surgery. And the people who had the external surgery are more likely to have grown up not comfortable in their sex of assignment. And my personal theory about that, and all I can say is that it's a personal theory, uh, is that when you grow up having had external genital surgery, and so many people are always, doctors keep looking at your genitalia and thinking, conveying that there's something problematic about them, it's much more likely for you yourself to be questioning, is there something wrong with this gender I've been assigned to? And when you're thinking a lot about that, then it's much more likely for you to recognize gender dysphoria. My feeling is that there are more of us who are intersex who are not comfortable in the binary sex that we were assigned. It's important to distinguish that a heightened number from there being a whole lot of us or most of us or something like that. And most people, you know, grow up comfortable in their sexes of assignment because that's just the way we socialize people. Here you grow up and we teach you how to be the way you are and and that's okay. And that problem is not gender identity. Their problem relates to, you know, things that they suffer due to having had surgery that has caused them trauma or has limited their, you know, various capacities of theirs, limited their sexual sensitivity, etc it's not an identity problem. It's other problems with having genital surgery you didn't ask for, or other surgery into other aspects of your body you didn't ask for. I can't tell you how many people <laughs> um, who are intersex uh, are trans, um, but I would say it's higher than the endosex population because we are, spend our whole lives questioning our gender assignment if certain aspects of our body... Our intermediate.
3: This has been fascinating. We'll continue the discussion on the next edition of Outcasting. Thanks to both of you for joining us.
2: I appreciate the invitation. Thanks. That's it for this edition of Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program, where you don't have to be queer to be here. This program has been produced by the Outcasting team, including youth participants Alex, Andrea, Dante, Drew, Griffin, Lauren, Quinn, Nico, Max, Sam, and me, Lucas. Our assistant producers are Alex Mintz and Josh Valley, and our executive producer is Mark Sophus. Outcasting is a production of Media for the Public Good, a listener-supported independent producer based in New York. More information about Outcasting is available at outcastingmedia.org. You'll find information about the show, listen links for all Outcasting episodes, and the podcast link. Outcasting is also on social media. Connect with us on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube at Outcasting Media. If you're having trouble, whether it's at home or school or just with yourself, call the Trevor Project hotline at 866-488-7386 or visit them online at thetrevorproject.org. The Trevor Project is an organization dedicated to LGBTQ youth suicide prevention. They even have an online chat you can use if you don't want to talk to them on the phone. Being different isn't a reason to hate or hurt yourself. I'll say it one more time. 866-488-7386 or online at thetrevorproject.org. You can also find a link on our site, outcastingmedia.org, under Outcasting, LGBTQ Resources. I'm Lucas. Thanks for listening.
0: If you enjoyed this edition of Outcasting, please make a tax-deductible gift to Media for the Public Good. We can't do programs like this without your support. Visit mfpg.org and click on Support and connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, and YouTube at Outcasting Media. Thanks.